Hello and welcome to Stories of the Second World War. Before we get into today's episode and hear the story of a Dutch youth group who boldly resisted Nazi occupation in the early 1940s, I would just like to encourage everyone listening to consider supporting the show by visiting our sponsor, Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is a World War II firearms dealer that I personally trust and recommend for anyone listening who is fascinated by World War II and wants to own a piece of its history for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles has firearms from all over the world, all of which can be easily viewed on their user-friendly website at legacy-collectibles.com. In addition to their great website, if you're someone who enjoys learning about the history behind these weapons, check out the Legacy Collectibles YouTube channel for excellent videos made by historical weapons experts. If you're interested in World War II weaponry and would like to consider supporting the podcast, head over to Legacy-Collectibles. Again, that's Legacy-Collectibles.com or follow the link to their website and YouTube channel in the description of this episode. Today, I'm joined by Julian and Joe, founders of the podcast network Republic of Amsterdam Radio, which is home to some of the best history podcasts on the internet. In today's episode, I'm going to be asking them about their latest podcast, Free and Fearless, in the story of Dutch resistance during Nazi occupation in World War II. Julian and Joe, thank you so much for joining me today. Hello, Noah. How are you, mate? Thanks for having us. Good. Thank you guys so much for being here. Well, I'm so excited to talk to you guys. There's so much I want to get into, but it's been so fascinating to me. You guys on your podcast network have created a podcast called Free and Fearless, the story of the first parole trial. And I know you guys do a lot of work covering the history of the Netherlands, a country that is not as mainstream as some of the other nations during World War II. But very simply, would you guys just love to tell our listeners today about this podcast and how it relates to World War II? Uh, yeah, sure. And um, for us, it's, it's one of the most important things with the Netherlands is how undervalued it is in looking at general history. And when it comes to World War II, there are just so many stories that come from this place that we uh, we kind of discover and want to delve into. So the story of Free and Fearless is uh, about a youth group, uh, young men in Amsterdam in World War II, who when the occupation begins in 1940, they start going about ways of, of resisting. And some of it is quite you know, juvenile. One of them was working at the Fokker airplane factory and was sticking sort of anti-Nazi stickers onto the planes and things like that. But um, generally what they came to do was stenciling anti-Nazi propaganda newspapers, basically. Uh, they, they began to wage a war of information. Uh, yeah, because one of the big things that happened at the beginning of the occupation was that the newspapers in the Netherlands were um, either stopped or taken over by the new Nazi regime. And so it was impossible for anyone to get uh, information which wasn't completely censored or just completely fabricated by the occupying forces. And so this was their attempt to try to fight back and try to keep freedom of speech happening. They started off by printing like small leaflets, which they would hand out to people. But then they ended up getting in contact with a journalist called Franz Guthardt, who was one of the founders of Parole, which is an anti-Nazi newspaper. And yeah, eventually they started delivering the newspaper and 
printing it out in basements and delivering uh, the newspaper to different houses around Amsterdam. And yeah, the parole actually went into other cities as well. The main point of the story is that these young men got arrested uh, after they were betrayed. And then they ended up spending uh, around 18 months in uh, various concentration camps around the Netherlands. Uh, they were put on a kind of secret trial where no one was allowed into the courtroom. Their lawyers were only told like five minutes beforehand about their cases. They had a completely fabricated trial where they were sentenced, most of them, to death. And uh, yeah, they then proceeded to be kept in these camps and were eventually executed on the 5th of February in 1943. So, you know, we're talking about how they were young people. They were young people who didn't really maybe understand the consequences of what might happen. They were, had the bravado of youth and, um, yeah, ended up paying the, the highest cost possible for their actions. Wow. Well, where did you guys first encounter this story? I mean, that's what I love about World War II is there's so many different stories from different places and different countries that are about bravery and valor. And this is certainly one of them. But I'm curious, how did you guys stumble upon it? Well, um, we, we kind of have a bit of a, a passion for uh, defiance and rebellion and resistance. And in podcasts we've done in the past, it's like the main focus that um, standing up against authority is one of the driving forces of progress. And the resistance in the Netherlands has always uh, fascinated both of us, um, particularly because when we think about resistance with World War II, you often think of uh, like the French resistance is really quite renowned and it's got this image of kind of um, acts of uh, violence and, and kind of this guerrilla warfare. And it just wasn't really the case here. The Netherlands is a very small place. It's a swamp. There aren't a lot of forests or there are no mountains. There are no caves. You can't kind of go and blow a train up and then go hide for a couple of weeks. And so that aspect always really uh, uh, fascinated us. And then we got in contact with uh, the association behind the parole newspaper because the newspaper is still around today. And um, they actually have the letters that were written by these guys in the hours before they were executed. Oh, wow. Through our discourse with them, they kind of said, oh, look, we, we have these letters. Do you want to look at them? And um, we were just blown away. Uh, the main sort of, or well, the first one we looked at was one of the main characters that we focus on in the series. His name was Jan Zvonenberg. He was about 20. He, I'll, I'll just, I'll read you the first uh, line of his letter. And this is the very first thing that we, um, we kind of, uh, were exposed to with this story uh and it, it was it was written in dutch but we kind of part of the work was translating all of it so i'll give you the benefit of the english version he wrote i've just heard that my sentence will be carried out today at two o'clock which means i still have two hours left to live and for us this kind of opened up a story where we considered you know okay here's a young person who has grown up in a fairly progressive city uh, has seen that come under occupation and then taken action and spent 18 months in a concentration camp and then still has the composure to write such a clear and, and what we thought was quite poetic sort of announcement of what he knew was coming. And that was kind of our introduction to it. And the thing about those letters as well is that when you're looking at them with your own eyes, they're written in really beautiful, tiny, uh, like handwritten script. and 
coming from the 21st century where I don't think I've written anything with a pen in years. I don't think I could, my handwriting's horrible. And just imagining someone in this circumstance where they have two hours left to live, but they have the composure to write in just such a beautiful way. It, It was really powerful, honestly. Wow. That's so incredible. What an experience. So were these young men who were really the the main characters in the story of Free and Fearless, what were they like? Are these sort of just, I mean, young men in their perhaps late teens and early 20s who don't really have a great deal of experience are still sort of finding their way in life and are very keen to rebel against the status quo, which of course was Nazi occupation at that time? Yeah. Um, so in the group which we focused on, they were all members of a socialist youth group, which was called the Arbeiters Jocht Centrale, like the Workers' Youth Centre. Uh, so the they, AJC. The AJC, yeah. So they had um, all been politically active before the war, uh, but that was more of like a group where they would hang out with each other. I think they did a lot of sports, sports together as yeah. well. But also have political debate and there's a couple of aspects of the time there. So the Dutch society was pillarized, what you call pillarized. So there were these kind of pillars of society, and one of them was the working class and what veered towards quite socialist pillar. So they would have grown up in that, and so there was a political bent to it, which was very left-wing. But I think mainly it was kind of activities and yeah, playing games, doing um, jiu-jitsu. Yeah, and then when the war began, um, like we read in, we did a lot of um, extra research when we were making this. We went to the NEOD, which is the Center for War Documentation and Holocaust Studies in the Netherlands, where they have all the like original documents from the Second World War. And we were able to find like uh, further uh, interviews with some of the people who had survived the war, where they talked about what happened um, through that. And uh, yeah, they would talk about how disappointed they were with the older people in the socialist movements when the war began, because a lot of them just kind of, you know, stuck their hands up and put their heads down and, and didn't fight for what they believed. And so we, we got the impression that they were rebellious young men who just yeah. wanted to st- stick up for what they believed. And then um, on an individual basis, we focus on the three main characters of the group. And um, the kind of leader, it's, it's a really, it's a hard word to use because uh, the guy whose name was given to the group is Ari Addix. And he was a loose unit. He was kind of, he, he wanted to fight everyone and bomb everything and kind of wage this world war. Um, the other one was Jan Zvannenberg, who seemed to have a little bit more of a cool head about him. And then Rob Dalma is the third one. And he was really the one that all the sources pointed to as like the actual leader in the group, um, sort of emotionally. He was the one that people would lean on and, through the concentration camp uh, period, he kind of stayed strong for everybody else. So uh, they were different characters, certainly. And, you know, they were also three of a much bigger group. So That's incredible. Um, I think that's so cool that you guys really got to bring that story to life through your podcast. And certainly I'll put a link to it in the description below, Free and Fearless. Incredible podcast. I've listened to it myself and thoroughly enjoyed all of the episodes that you guys put out. Well, you guys on your network have another podcast called The History of the Netherlands. The Netherlands is certainly an underrated country, yet has a part to play in many conflicts throughout world history. When talking about World War II, 
Are there certain things that you think people should keep in mind about the country? Maybe things you've covered on your different podcasts? Before we continue our conversation about Dutch resistance and the Netherlands during World War II, I just wanted to share a quick message on our sponsor, Legacy Collectibles. On this podcast, we talk about defining moments and battles that shaped the story of World War II. If you're someone who is deeply interested in the Second World War, Legacy Collectibles provides so many opportunities to own a piece of World War II weaponry for yourself. Do be sure to check out the easily accessible website, legacy-collectibles.com, after you finish listening today. Well, in the history of the Netherlands podcast, we're trying to do a bit of a chronological narrative, so and we're only up to the mm. 1400s. The 1400s yeah. So we've got a lot of episodes to go before we crack on to World War II. Kind of having looked at the, the role of uh, the Netherlands and how World War II happened here. Um, yeah, there are some really interesting things, and it kind of comes back to like why we do what we do with the history of the Netherlands and, and projects like Free and Fearless. Um, this is a really compelling place, and not only kind of Amsterdam where we live and, and you know uh, focus most of our energy on, but the, the whole country in general. It's it's really it, it's compelled people for a long time, and mm-hmm. like uh, there are some really famous stories that come from here. Like the Anne Frank story is is obviously really uh, yeah. uh, well known. Mainly because of the primary source that she left, but it's thought that around eighteen thousand people hid around Amsterdam and around two hundred thousand people around the country during World War Two, and so there are just this plethora of stories that are either unknown, will never be known because they've been lost, or will only be kind of brought to the world if if they're kind of found and then brought out. And I think that's something that people don't realize with the Netherlands in World War Two that there was so much happening here given, you know, five years of occupation. And a lot of the uh, information which you can find uh, is in Dutch. Uh, and it's not really, that's, that's maybe one of the reasons why it's not so well known is just because it hasn't been written in English or, or translated into English. And so that's what we are really aiming to do with our work is to try to um, give that to the world, uh, try to make some of these stories known outside of the Netherlands. There's a really cool one that um, came up in the study of Korean Fearless um about one of the policemen uh called uh Martin Capers. And actually this is a point that uh people should know about the Netherlands. The the police here were very collaborative with the Nazis. Uh it goes down to the kind of yeah, the ethnic bridge between the Germanic countries and all this and that. But there was a lot of collaboration and one of those policemen, Martin Capers, he he came into our story because he came to arrest Ari Addix. Uh, one of our main protagonists. He's the same policeman who uh, arrested Anne oh, Frank wow. and her family. And uh, there's another really famous Dutch um, female resistance fighter who's known in the Netherlands but not at all outside uh, called Honey Scuffed. Uh, and she was kind of renowned for luring Nazi soldiers into the dunes or into the forest, you know, with promises of promiscuity and, uh, and then mm. would shoot them, you know. She was caught eventually and taken and executed, and the person who executed her was the same policeman, Martin Copers. And, and so there's kind of this, yeah, there are these weird links between a lot of these stories, and, and we just don't feel that enough of them are known to the world. The best thing about the Honey Shuff story is that when she was executed, the first round of um, bullets didn't actually kill her, and she looked up at the uh, people who had shot her and said, 
I'm a better shot. And then that policeman emptied the rest of the rounds into her. So imagine that, your last dying word. <laughs> wow. Well, that's a, that's a remarkable <laughs> story. And again, I just think it's so cool that you guys can bring them to life through all of your podcasts. Well, another thing that I'm dying to speak to you guys about today is your latest project, Hiding in the Wolf's Lair. Can you tell us all about that a little bit? Because uh, I don't want to give it away. I'll let you guys do the talking, but I just think that's so cool. Well, for our day jobs, because you know, podcasting doesn't exactly make a whole lot of money. So for our day jobs, we work as uh, boat captains in Amsterdam. We give tours of the city. And in the wintertime, there isn't uh, that much demand for tourists to go out on boats because it's pretty cold and miserable. Um, so one thing which happens every year is this festival, which is called the Amsterdam Light Festival, where they set up artworks around the city, which are made to be seen by boat. Uh, they're light art installations. They're quite normally quite beautiful to look at. Um, but as uh, you know, people who are interested in Dutch history, we would always go on the light festival, uh, giving tours, and then thinking, "Yeah, this is very artsy, but it doesn't really tell a story about Amsterdam." And so we we kind of just arrogantly imagined we could make something for this, and um, yeah, decided to make a, an installation. And to our amazement horror, astonishment. Um, <laughs> our idea was accepted by the Light Festival. So all of a sudden this year, we've been really busy making a light art installation. Joe can explain what it actually is. Uh, it's again, as um, very suitable for this podcast, it's a story about World War II um, to do with uh, people who went into hiding um, in, in Amsterdam. Like I mentioned before, there were so many people. And the Dutch have a really great word for people who went into hiding. Uh, which is under a diver, and it, it means like diving under, someone who dives under. And we always think that's, you know, it's very appropriate for a place which is over half underneath sea level, you know. It's kind of this, yeah, descriptive uh, way of, you know, talking about people who just tried to get out of the, the focus of the occupiers. And so whenever there were razzias and, and kind of um, people being picked up off the street in Amsterdam, people would flee and they would go into hiding. Uh, the zoo in Amsterdam, which is one of the oldest in Europe, is uh, in the east of the city, which is also where the Jewish neighborhood uh, was. And so there were often razzias there and people would go running and hiding and people started going into the zoo and they started going um, to, you know, zookeepers that they knew or the staff members and just asking to be hid. And so over the course of years, between 250 and 350 thereabouts people hid in the zoo for days weeks months years even there was a family that hid for a year and a half above the wolf house and um yeah and and again another story that you know to us it, it's kind of like the world should know this it's amazing and, yeah. and and so what we did is also keeping in mind uh, an old kind of Latin proverb that we'd come across at some point, uh, homo homini lupus, man is a wolf to man, uh, indicating the kind of behavior that we exhibit to each other during war. Uh, we created an installation which is on the back of a building in the zoo, uh, which can be seen from the canal outside, and essentially it shows uh, silhouetted people hiding in the attic above, and then there are these big 3D life-sized wolves 3d printed yeah, 3d printed uh life-sized wolves that are kind of prowling around them and and it's all lit up at night and yeah because the thing about the the story with the zoo as well is that it was one of the most popular places for the german soldiers to visit during the occupation 
because you know there was not much to do in the city during the war and so they would all go look at the animals so there are so many amazing photos of german soldiers like standing around looking at penguins or looking at lions but they didn't realize that you know within five ten meters of where they are there were people hiding from them and no one was ever arrested in the zoo it's just kind of incredible to to think about yeah i think that the and we'll send you this photo. There's a photo of, of German soldiers looking at the penguins, not realizing that firstly the penguin exhibit had been designed by a Jewish uh, artist, uh, and there were people hiding behind it at the time. And when we uh, so when we were doing the research into this story, um, the the book which we read about it's called Ulfelefen in der Dierentown, which means surviving in the zoo. It was written by a man named Martin Frankenhaus, who was the former director of the zoo during the 1990s. And when he be- he became the director, he was like a fan of history himself. So he started delving into the zoo's history and he got really fascinated by these stories of the people who were hiding. And he was able to interview uh, some of them uh, while they were still alive because you know, most of them have passed away by now. Uh, but he was able to, to interview them and take down their stories and he made the book. And then he was kind enough to invite us to his house. And uh, we did an interview with him where we sat down and hit record. And he just basically spoke at us nonstop for maybe three hours, just telling us stories about the zoo and about the zoo during the war. And um, we were able to make a a podcast episode uh, to go along with the art installation, uh, which is just the same title, Hiding in the Wolf's Lair, uh, which I recommend People, if they're interested in World War II, definitely check out that uh, podcast. It's really interesting. That's incredible. So over the course of World War II, you mentioned that many Jews who hid in the zoo were able to escape the Nazis successfully, right? Well, it's complicated. Firstly, like uh, Jews, yes, but also uh, being that it was this kind of quite progressive city, there was a lot of demographics in Amsterdam who had reason to fear the Nazi occupation and who were shipped off, essentially. Um, you had an open gay community, very left-wing communist, um, obviously a very large Jewish community. And then uh, the Germans introduced Arbeitseinsatz, uh, forced labor. Uh, and so suddenly anyone over 14 was liable to be picked up off the street. And so, yeah, it was a kind of mix of people who hid in the zoo. Uh, no one was arrested in the zoo, per se. Um, like Julian said, but as to whether people like hid there and then escaped and then sort of went back out and then were caught later, it's also difficult to say. I mean, Amsterdam lost 95% of its Jewish population. So, yeah, a lot of people might have hid for a few days, but then tragically not survived. Wow, that's really interesting. Well, Julian and Joe, can you just tell all of our listeners today where they can find you on the internet and uh, some podcasts that they should be sure to check out of yours? Totally. You can find all of the work which we have done on our website, uh, which is republicofamsterdamradio.com. I love how you call it our podcast network, Noah. It's it's, it's literally just the... It's it's warming the cockles of our hearts. Yeah, it's it's Joe, it's me, and it's also our colleague David who's sitting here quietly next to us right now. Um, But on that website, republicofamsterdamradio.com, you can find our first podcast, Stuff What You Tell Me, which is about rebellion and resistance. You can find Free and Fearless, the story of the parole trial, and you can find the history of the Netherlands, which is a project which we are putting the most effort into at the moment. Um, we're also very active on Twitter. I don't know if anyone uses Twitter these days, but if you go to 
at History of NL. We use that. But yeah, that's the social media which we use the most. But yeah, just check out RepublicofAmsterdamRadio.com. And yeah. And yeah, certainly a few other ideas in the pipelines. And uh, yeah, we, we uh, look forward to bringing that out in the future as well. So That's so incredible. Thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today, you guys. I've been an admirer of your work for quite some time. So this was certainly a real treat for me. Mate, you're thank absolutely you. welcome. Yeah, thank you very much. We still need to do it the opposite way around. Now we need to have you on our History of the Netherlands talking about Vikings at some point. Yeah, and just to extend the the uh, same thing back, now I've been a massive fan of your work for a long time and uh, really stoked with what you're doing here. It's fantastic, so good on you, and thanks very much for having us on. Well, it's been a great pleasure speaking to you both, and thank you all so much for listening today to Stories of the Second World War. Please be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcasting platform and consider leaving a positive rating and review. Additionally. I'd like to encourage everyone listening to support the show by visiting our sponsor, Legacy Collectibles. Legacy Collectibles is an antique World War II firearms dealer that I trust and is a must-check-out for anyone who listens to the podcast and wants to own a piece of World War II for themselves. While they specialize in World War II German pistols, Legacy Collectibles prides themselves in having a user-friendly website where you can browse a large array of authentic and original military artifacts. If you're someone who's interested in learning more about World War II weaponry and have been pondering the idea of starting a collection of your own, then check out the Legacy Collectibles YouTube channel for excellent videos curated by historical weapons experts. If you'd like to support the podcast, head over to legacy-collectibles.com. Again, that's legacy-collectibles.com or simply follow the link in the description of this episode. Thanks so much for listening. Join us here again next week.